Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to hear from your word, to be challenged and inspired. I pray your anointing on Toby and that our hearts and minds would be open to your spirit. Move in our lives and change us to be more like Christ. And it's in his name that we ask it. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Jason. Uh, I think we agree a lot more today than we did before, probably on just about everything, right? So That's because I've changed. Yeah. <laughs> I won't let you get away with that. We both changed. Thank you for having me this morning. Uh, today, we're going to talk about something, that one of my favorite subjects, God's Word. We're actually going to be talking about Psalm 19. Um, you can go and flip to it. It's somewhere in the middle of your Bible. Psalm takes up about what, half the Bible, something like that, quarter of the Bible, Psalm 19 in your pew Bibles if you want to follow along. And as you're turning there, let me just tell you, this is one of the greatest Psalms there is. It's one of the most beautiful, at least that's what I think, but I'm not alone in that. C.S. Lewis, anybody heard of C.S. Lewis before? Yeah, C.S. Lewis, okay. Um, just kidding, I know probably everybody has. Um, here's what he says about Psalm 19. He says, it I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Wonderful Christian, wonderful writer, understood poetry, right? He was an English professor um, as well as a theologian, and he takes this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. I agree with that. My own view, I would state it like this. I think it's a beautiful meditation on God's Word, and on the life-giving benefits of those who follow God's Word. And I think if we understand David's perspective in this psalm, it can be life-changing. Literally, life-changing. Here's the perspective. Let me state it for you, and then we're going to see it in the passage. This is essentially it. God loves you incredibly. His word is life-giving, and it's directed to us. His word is life-giving, and it's directed to us. We desperately need God's word to be truly happy. It's not possible otherwise. Okay? So, let's dive in. Uh, when I graduated college, shortly after I graduated college, I took a trip with some friends to the Grand Canyon. I don't know how many have ever been to the Grand Canyon Unbelievable place, okay? Um, if you haven't been there, you need to go. But the views from the top are beautiful, just majestic. And we spent four days hiking there. Two days we spent hiking down and back on the same day, you know, like an, a two-hour trip, a three-hour trip. But then we spent two days where we hiked all the way to the bottom on one day and spent the night, and we hiked all the way back the next day. Just grueling. I mean, it was tough, but it was absolutely beautiful. And I remember being at the bottom at night, beautiful stars out, just the majesty of creation. I don't get a lot of opportunities like that, and I probably should get more, but David had a lot of them. David was a shepherd, and the life of a shepherd is basically the shepherd and the sheep in the wilderness, right, in pastures. And so he had a lot of time out there in nature to be able to reflect on creation. And um, just imagine 
how much time he had and being a man after God's own heart and knowing God's word, what his reflections on creation were like. That's what we have today in Psalm 19, at least in the first four verses. Um, let me show you what David saw. We're going to read the first four verses here. Um, it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. So he's looking at creation, and he says, it declares the glory of God. Heaven, the, the heavens, all of creation, declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims his handiwork. Um, Flip with me, if you will, back to Genesis 1, because most scholars believe that this is what David had in mind, and I agree with them. I think this is exactly what David is doing, is what's here in Genesis chapter 1, verses 29 through 31. Now, remember, Genesis 1 is the creation account where God speaks everything that there is into existence. It's by His Word that everything comes about, out of nothing, and each day that God speaks, he also says, it is good. So he speaks it into existence, and he judges it to be good. And you get to the end of the sixth day, the last day of creating, right? Seventh day he rested. So on the end of the sixth day, verse 29, here's what God says. And it involves a command to us. Most people don't notice this, but here it is. And I think David was keenly aware of this. Here's, here's what he said in verse 29, Genesis chapter 1. It says, and God said, behold, that's a command. It's a command. Look at everything. Okay, he says, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Right? These are life-giving things to humanity. Behold, see what a good God I am? See how good creation is? Behold. Verse 30, And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And then he says it again, verse 31. And God saw, and by the way, this word for saw doesn't just mean he happened to see, like, you know, he noticed. It's an idea of judging, of contemplating, of looking at something and thinking about it and drawing a conclusion. That's what all throughout Genesis 1 and here too, it says, and God saw or judged everything that he had made and behold, there's the command again, behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Flip back to Psalm 19, and you can see this in those four verses that we were looking at. David is following the command to behold creation, and he's judging it to be good. Now, he's not just doing it as a matter of formality. Well, God said it's good. I'm supposed to say that it's good. No, he is contemplating creation. He spends all this time out in the wilderness thinking about God's word throughout creation, and this is what he says. I agree with God. It's very good. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And here we see day and night here, right? Day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. So there's revelation in this, revelation of God himself. Verse 4, their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the ends 
of the world. God invites us to behold creation and judge it as very good. That's what David had in mind, and that's what he did. Now, we all get this sense of awe and wonder when we spend time in creation, and we dwell on it. We contemplate it. It's just a natural thing, just of experiencing it, like David. We have the benefit, though, I think it's a benefit of scientists today who really can help us contemplate that even more. For me, it it can happen in lots of different ways, but what stands out most is the astronomers, like Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan, famous astronomer, he's known for saying there are billions and billions of stars in the universe, even said trillions a few times, Um, and there are trillions. And it reminded me, I just have to share this, of a Far Side cartoon. If you've ever read The Far Side, there was one, it's one panel, it says Carl Sagan as a, as a child. And he's sitting there with a friend, and he's looking up at the heavens at night and the stars. He said, look at all those, there must be hundreds of them. <laughs> so he grows up, and of course now he sees there's billions and billions. Well, there's billions and billions. And let me just put some of this in perspective for you. Our galaxy, the Milky Way, is one of 100 billion galaxies. 100 billion galaxies out there. Milky Way is one of them. In the Milky Way alone, 300 billion stars. 300 billion. Now, if you think you understand a billion, let me put this in perspective, okay? One second, right? How long does that last? Last one second. If you have a million seconds, that's 12 days. All right, that kind of seems like a long time. What if you have a billion seconds? That's 30 years. One trillion seconds? 30,000 years. Massive, right? We cannot comprehend these. This is the closest that we can get is analogies like this. That's the universe. That's what we see when we look up at nighttime. That's what David is amazed at. When we encounter creation, contemplating it, we see the majesty of the creator, the majesty of his creation. And we, it's not only that it's vast, but it's beautiful, absolutely beautiful in every dimension. And we know this from other parts of science. Have you ever studied the human body, for instance? Just a work of art. People study chemistry or, or physics, volcanoes, um, plant life. It doesn't matter what it is. Colors, music, it's all just absolutely beautiful, created by the creator. David has in his mind, in his perspective, this sense that God's word, which created it, spoke it all into existence, just echoes everywhere around creation, everywhere you can look. It praises the creator. An amazing perspective. Now, I'm not going to give you too much theology here. Uh, I just want to give you one concept because I think it's helpful. It's called general revelation. The idea that God reveals himself in the creation, that he exists, that he's good, that his creation is good, that he loves us. Those are general things that we can see. And every religion has those things. But God doesn't stop there. He does something special. And that's what uh, David talks about in the second part of this psalm. And there's three parts. So we cover the first one. Um, The second one has to do with God's law. Um, If you've heard of the concept of Torah from maybe some Jewish friends or maybe from studies, the idea of Torah, it's hard to translate. 
Lots of times it's loosely translated as just law, right? The covenant, the commandments. That's accurate. It also refers to the five books of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament. Um, I think what's most instructive is this sense, is that it's an idea that God teaches us. Torah means God it teaches us through His Word. And this instruction from God is intended to bring us out of ignorance into true knowledge, out of sin, which leads to death and pain, into right thinking, which leads to abundant life and happiness. And this idea of Torah, or instruction by God, is that we're turned and we're facing God, our Creator, the Creator God. We're looking at Him in the face, waiting for His instruction, and He gives it to us daily. Anything else is called sin, right? Sin is essentially turning away from God to something else. It can be my own thoughts. It can be worshiping creation. It can be any philosophy. <clears throat> it can be hedonism. You name it. Anything else that we look to for guidance for how to live our life, that's what sin is. So Torah is being turned towards God, this creator of the wonderful, beautiful, vast creation which His Word created, and it echoes throughout creation. That same word that echoes throughout creation is spoken to God's people through His Word, through Torah. You get that? The same word that created all of this vast and beautiful creation is spoken to us as instruction that we might have life. So this changes everything, I think, in terms of how we look at God's Word, right? It's a gift that's meant to bless us, to make us happy, to make us fully content, to draw us to God, to understand the ways of the world that are life-giving, that we might live by them. Why does God do this? It's solely out of His love, right? He created us. He gets nothing out of it, really. He created, He's perfect in Himself. He needs nothing. And He creates us out of love for us that we might exist and be able to enjoy creation. And He continues to love us by taking extraordinary measures to reveal Himself to us, His Word to us, that we might live a truly content, abundant life. That's what David has in mind. Let's turn to the passage now, starting in verse 7. Now, what he does here is he describes the law, or Torah, God's Word, in six different ways. And in all of them, they're describing different facets of it, he just, he's describing how good it is. Just listen to this. It's, it's beautiful. The law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making the wise simple. Excuse me, making wise, sim making wise the simple. I can read. Making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes, the fear of the Lord, right? The way of life according to God's word. The fear of the Lord is clean. It endures forever. It leads to eternal life. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now listen to this. After all that, he says, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. He's saying there's nothing better 
out there than God's Word. Nothing that we should desire more than this life that comes to us when God instructs us by His Word. Verse 11, Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Again, it's this idea that if we're turned to God to be instructed by Him, He's generous. He's overflowing. He goes out of His way to speak to us with His Word, that we might have life and have it abundantly. And I think when you understand this idea of Torah, this idea of God's Word, it, it really makes sin look pretty ridiculous. I mean, we all get caught up in it. I'm not casting stones, or I'm, I'm, all of us, but it's, it's really pretty ridiculous. This is what sin is. You have this gift of happiness and abundant life and joy and eternal life, blessing, and we reject it and we turn to anything else. We choose to live according to our own severely limited minds. I can't conceive, I mean, I, I got a B in physics in college, right? I, I didn't even get an A in physics. So how could my ideas be anywhere near as good as God's, right? Even the brightest minds among us, there's nothing that we could conceive anything close to God's word. Why would we ever turn from it? When we understand it that way, it's pretty silly. We still do, right? It's more complex than that. But today, what I want you to see is David's perspective on God's word. That's what this is all about. So there's two ways that we sin that David talks about here in in the part coming up. I just want to go ahead and talk about them. One of them is it's out of ignorance. Because of our limited minds, we don't even know when we get God's word wrong, God's way of life wrong. Sometimes, lots of times we do, but sometimes we don't even know when we've gotten it wrong. Out of ignorance, but also out of arrogance. When we say, not for me. I'm smarter than that. I'm better than that. This is better. I know better. Whatever it might be, however form it takes. So, That's the perspective. And here's a take-home point that I want you to take home. Um, God's Word is a gracious gift. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. Too many people think of God's Word as, well, you can't do this. Well, that's just messing up all my fun. Don't do this. Do that. Do this. I don't think that's right. I think if we misunderstand God's Word in that way, we end up doing things like, pointing a finger at other people. Oh, you shouldn't be doing that. And we rail against our culture. Our culture has gone off the deep end and... Okay. Yeah, I mean, I I, I get all that. And in some ways, I guess I agree. But that's not how we should look at God's Word. God's Word is a blessing. It's life-giving. We should want it for ourselves and for others. This reminds me, I mean, the way I want to illustrate this is, you know the website Ashley Madison, right? It was for married people to be able to, to cheat on their spouses. And some hackers got a hold of the confidential information, and they put it out there for the whole world to see. These people were exposed. And Josh Duggar from 19 and Counting, or whatever it's called, the Duggars, he's caught up in all that, right? And he was on that. And when I heard that, I thought, well, people get what they deserve. No big deal. Josh Duggar, what a scoundrel, you know. I I judged him. And then it turns out, this came out a little bit later, that most of the accounts on the Ashley Madison website were men. All the women, most of them were fake accounts. They did that just to get money from the men who were 
seeking something different. And I laughed at that. Right? I laughed. That's kind of funny. And then what happened this week, a man killed himself because he was outed on this website, left a wife and kids. Think about the grief that this man had. Not just the shame from it. He was actually a pastor. Right? So, of course, he was ashamed. He didn't want to be living that life. He was trapped in it. But even the people who didn't get caught, that's the effect that sin has. It's darkness. And the effect that it has on those around them, it's terrible. It's awful. Shame on me for pointing a bony finger, right, and for laughing. It's natural. I get it. You know, I'm not pointing a finger at you. But my point in all this is if we understand this perspective of God's word, what we want is life and blessing for everyone. It makes us more compassionate on everyone who's suffering under the dominion of sin, living in darkness. So when David praises Torah in these verses, this is his perspective. Now I want to focus on one aspect of it. Um, looking there at, at verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. I just want to focus on this, just dive down a little bit more on this idea of God's word revives the soul. When I was in ninth grade, I played football. Um, it was the second time I played football. The first time was when I was in fourth grade. There was a big gap in there because I wasn't very good at it. I know, I look like, you know, like I should be on the line, right, for the Dallas Cowboys, which starts tonight. I know you all know, right? Yeah. Um, so I went, when I started in ninth grade, I was five foot two, and I weighed like 145 pounds. Now, I don't know if you know five foot two, 145 pounds. This was before I hit puberty, although most of the guys on the football squad had already hit puberty. A lot of them were like 200, 250, whatever. Here I am, five two, 145, and like zero muscle. I mean, it's, I was a little bit chunky. It's just kind of how I, I filled out. And so I actually signed up a month late in, into the, the, towards the end of the summer. I just said, you know what? I'm going to go do this. I know I'm not going to play much. I just want to lose some weight. And so I get on there, and what do they do? They stick me on the line. <laughs> stick me on the line. And guess what? I was like fourth string. I don't even know if it was a fourth string. Maybe I was on it all by myself. But <laughs> I mean, I was terrible, and I got beat up in practice every day. I tried hard, but I just got pushed around. I ended up losing weight. And, um, but, man, I got beat up every day. And, by the way, I had two plays during the season. That's all he played me, two plays. It really was just one play. It was the same play. I went in, false start, okay? <laughs> Caused a penalty, but I, they left me, and they let me play my one play, and that was it. So that's my glorious state. Now, why am I telling you this? Well, it's kind of a funny story, but every day, I, after getting pushed around, just beat down, worn out, tired, walk home, I set my stuff down, I go out to my pool, and I would just fall in. I was exhausted, and I was hot, you know, 100 degree weather, um, and, you know, a little bruised and ego bruised, all those things, but just sat in the water. It was so refreshing. That's the idea here of God's Word refreshing our souls. God's Word, we're, we're created in such a way that when we have God's Word, it animates us, it enlivens us, it gives us a passion for life, a zest for life. 
What happens when we don't have that? What happens when we're beat up by sin? Whether it's my own sin or someone else's sin affecting me. We all know this. It's depressing, right? We lose a zest for life. It literally takes the life out of us. That's what David's talking about here. He says, God's word revives the soul. It revives the soul. Without it, we can't live life fully. We can't be fully happy. That's what he's saying. I know many of you have experienced this at least a time or two. Probably some of you haven't. What I want you to see today is that God's word is necessary to live fully, to to be fully content. That's how we're created by our creator, this glorious creator whose word echoes through heaven, brings that same word to us. We can have that same gloriousness in our lives, that abundant life. That's what David is saying here. That's his perspective. So not only is God's word not just a bunch of rules, we already talked about that, it's also just not a, it's not a bunch of ideas, truths and for theologians and philosophers to debate. It is a living force. It is a life-giving force. It gives life to you and to me. If you don't believe me, it's because you haven't experienced it. If you've never been taught by God, by His Word, or if you're not currently being taught by Him, your soul is lacking essential food to be truly happy. That's the message that David wants us to hear. We have to spend time facing God and seeking His instruction. Now, we've got one little section left. Before we turn to that, I want to give you a little bonus for the theologians out there, for the people who like to think, you know, from Genesis to Revelation. We're not going to spend a lot of time with it as much as I would love to. We don't have a lot of time, but it's John chapter 1. In the New Testament, John talks in these same terms. He talks about creation, and he talks about the Word of God. Not only does God go to extraordinary measures to have His Word echo throughout creation, not only does He go to extraordinary measures to communicate through us through thousands of years of testimony through His people, the Israelites, the Word itself, God's Word itself took on flesh. Think about that. Think about how amazing that is. The extraordinary love that God has for us, He wants to reach you and me not just once, but every day, so that we can experience that life in our souls. Extraordinary measures. And of course, Jesus went on to die and be raised and been redeemed. All of those things we don't have time to talk about, but I just want you to see the connection. John picks that up. It's a creation passage where he's picking up this idea of God's Word is life-giving. And God loves us so much that He takes extraordinary measures, like sending His Son in the flesh. God loves us. All right, let's finish up uh, in the last part, um, 12 through 14. This is David's self-reflection and prayer. Right? Remember, David, as a shepherd wandering around uh, in the pasture, he looks up and sees creation, how vast it is, how beautiful it is, and his conclusion is, I'm tiny, I'm puny, I'm small. And the whole vastness of creation... I'm just one person. Think of how small we are. And he also realizes in light of the second part how glorious God's Word is, 
how beautiful it is, how life-giving it is. And he says, I'm ignorant. My understanding is limited. Nothing like God's word. And he says, I'm arrogant. Sometimes I think I know better than God. If you know the stories of David, you know he had some big sins, right? Some whoppers. He had some time to reflect on those. So he understands the pain and the anguish that come from living sin, not just for himself, but for other people. But he also knows that God loves him and wants him to experience life fully because of the extraordinary measures he took to reveal himself. So let's look at what he says. In verse 12, he says, who can discern his errors? Right? This is the ignorance. He's saying, my mind is limited. I don't even know sometimes when I sin. Who can discern, out of ignorance, who can discern his errors? God, declare me innocent from my hidden faults. God knows them. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Don't let me be arrogant. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. And then he closes with this, and this is the posture that we can take if we understand his perspective, David's perspective on God's word. It's verse 14. This is the posture he takes. It's one of humility, dependence, knowing that he needs God and God's word and God's instruction, and at the same time, confidence to go to the one who loves us, who wants us to experience this abundant life. This is what he says. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Even though I'm limited, even though I'm sinful, I'm arrogant, even though I'm tiny, can I, magnif- can I glorify you like creation does, right? The sun and the moon and the stars and all of creation, they glorify you. Can I do that too? Let me be acceptable to you. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This creator God is personal. You get that? You get the perspective? First, you take in the vastness of God and his creation, and you feel tiny. And then you take in the wisdom of God and how much he loves us by taking these extraordinary measures to reveal himself to us and to give us a life of blessing. And you recognize that you're not that smart. You're not that good. You're just not. So you're humbled. But then you realize that God loves us, and that God wants us to approach him. He took the extraordinary measures of sending his own son to die for us. That's love, to redeem us. David understood this. He looked to it. My prayer today is that you come to share David's perspective um, so that you can be in a position to pray this prayer every day. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you, first of all, for your love for us, that you created us out of love for us, that we might enjoy life abundant, and God, that you continue to love us and have taken such extraordinary measures that we might understand abundant life, that we might be taught by you, that we might be turned to you so that we might experience the life that you have in store for us. And God, we know that we'll fail, and we know that we'll make mistakes and sometimes even be arrogant in sinning. And we pray, God, that in those times that we might remember your love for us, 
and uh, that you sent your son to die for us in order that we might be redeemed again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.